Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And James, we are joined today by a special guest. Uh, who are we talking to today, Jim? And this is an excellent topic. Yeah, it's an excellent topic, but we're also talking to someone who's pretty eminent. I mean, Robert Child is an Emmy-nominated um, screenwriter, director, and actor, and author. He's made God knows how many historical documentaries. Um, he's been there, done it, got the T-shirt on literally kind of everything kind of media related. Um, he's done podcasts <laughs> himself. Um, but, it, but for our purposes, he is the author of Immortal Valor, the Black Medal of Honor winners. And there were seven of them in the Second World War. And boy, do they all have really, really interesting stories. I'm particularly struck, I have to say, Rob, by, by a couple of them especially. But but you are very welcome. And thank you for, thank you for joining us. I mean, what an – I mean – I suppose the first thing is, is how did you get to kind of write this book and, and wh- what prompted it? Well, James, uh, thank you for that introduction. I don't know if I can live up to that, but uh, <laughs> 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 but I'll try. This book uh, came about because I did an earlier film. You mentioned uh, my films. I did a film called The Wareth Eleven that was huh. yeah, nominated for an Emmy and that that was in 2011, 2012-ish, and that turned into a book. I was approached by an author um, about turning the documentary into a book called The Lost Eleven uh, back in 2015. And I said, sure. So she had she contacted her agent about pitching to Penguin Random House uh, the idea of The Lost Eleven, which is a story about black soldiers in World War II, or mm-hmm. massacred during the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, Penguin said, yes, let's do it. So we wrote that, took two years, and it came out in 2017. And mm-hmm. I was looking for my next project. And in researching the book, The Lost Eleven, I felt like there were so many stories of black soldiers in World War II, um, American soldiers, who whose stories hadn't been told. And I wanted to continue along in that vein. And I was talking with... Um, the reenactor coordinator that I had on the Worth 11, uh, Art Collins. And uh, I said, you know, Art, I think the best book to do would be to follow the Medal of Honor recipients, uh, the Black Medal of Honor recipients, World War II. And the problem that I got initially encountered was there wasn't much information on any of them, only a couple. Um, so I knew it would be a, a big research challenge to do this story. And it was. <laughs> but that, Wait, you, you pulled it off, if I might say so. Yeah. I uh, I mean, I just started the, the, with the basics, basically. I, I researched their family histories through genealogy sites, Ancestry.com, and started putting the jigsaw pieces together um, to, to build up their lives. Some of them, uh, like George Watson and and Willie James Jr. had like a paragraph, 
you know, yeah. on there. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to build up their. And he's the, and, and and George Watson. He's the, he's the first one to receive the DSE, isn't he? The Distinguished Service Cross. Yeah, he um, he saved all those um, men in the South Pacific um, when his ship went down. And uh, they're all distinctive. But yes, I believe he was the first one to receive the DSC. All but one of them received the DSC. Robert, why are they, Why are they? you know, lost in mystery? What? Because, you know, the Medal of Honor is a big, it's a big deal uh, as, as, as an award to be, to be given. I mean, how, how come they faded from view? Well, it was a combination of factors, I think. Um, Basically, it was the racism in in the country and in the military, and um, they were sidelined for over fifty years, um, where no black service members were awarded the Medal of Honor uh, from World War Two. Yeah, because this is the point, isn't it? They all got them in uh, much later, didn't they? Yeah, nineteen ninety seven. So it took over fifty years, um, and that was prompted by. Um, in the early 80s, no black service members from World War I had received the Medal of Honor either. Um, so there was a campaign to award um, two soldiers the Medal of Honor from that. And that started the ball rolling with the Department of Defense to look into why no black soldiers had received the Medal of Honor either from World War II. So they had been sidelined you know, for over 50 years. So there wasn't much investigation done on their lives gosh so so they'd been nominated had they for, for other awards what was the process to 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 locate the select these these seven men and then how how they were then you know made the cut as it were because 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 at such historical distance it gets much much more difficult doesn't it sure they use the criteria of the Distinguished Service Cross, which um, medal, which was the second highest medal for valor in the American military, and the research. I mean, that's a big award, isn't it? I mean, let, let, let's say that's that's the sort of equivalent of getting a DSO in in the Distinguished Service Order in in British. Yes, Army. exactly, second highest medal. Um, so they used that because Eisenhower used that to elevate some soldiers in the North African campaign, I believe. Uh, to the Medal of Honor, and they used that in the study on World War One to elevate uh, the black soldiers to the Medal of Honor. So they used that as their criteria um, to, to start. And right. uh, there were all but uh, all but uh, one had been awarded the uh, DSC, except for uh, Reuben Rivers, who had um, been awarded the Silver Star. And which is and his action is 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 just incredible, insane. Yeah, yeah isn't it? How courageous <laughs> he is! It, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, we we should get on to. I, I quite like to sort of, you know, do brief prodded history of all seven. But but it yeah. would be great to kind of focus on a couple. Sure. But 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 Rob, just to, just to sort of wind back a little bit. I mean, I, I think people have heard of the Tuskegee Airmen and and, and so on. Um, but but at what point do Black Americans become combat troops sure in the second world war because because the start off of they're not are they and and it's it's only till it's only later on i mean obviously you've got the you've got the 92nd buffalo division in in italy um and you know i remember talking to kind of veterans of that but yeah. but, but it, it it's a while coming isn't it it is because they were uh, sort of relegated to service roles um 
rear echelon duty um, because there was a belief that uh, they wouldn't perform well in combat. And uh, that was the result of a study done in 1925 by the Army War College that really was a racist study that um, said uh, black soldiers weren't as brave or intelligent as white soldiers, which isn't obviously isn't true, but that set the tone for going into World War II, that study between wars. And for that reason, black soldiers were shifted into uh, quartermaster units, other things, where they served for years. And it was only until uh, the Battle of the Bulge, right after the Battle of the Bulge, up, up until that, there was such attrition in the white rifle companies after the German attack that they needed bodies. They needed soldiers on the front lines. So Eisenhower's group there, his, his generals, and he led it, uh, decided that um, they should offer the opportunity and the privilege, quote unquote privilege, to serve <laughs> on the front lines in combat to uh, black service personnel who were in service roles. So at the, in December 1944, they opened up the door to uh, combat training in France for black soldiers. And uh, they were overwhelmed with nearly 5,000 applicants for um, a little over 2,000 places. So yeah, they, they whittled it down. So the black soldiers only entered combat really in early 1945. Do we know why people were volunteering? Uh, because, because you know, the, the, by, by the end of the war, the Second World War, British soldiers, they feel they're going to get a welfare state out of it at the end. Um, Indian soldiers, a lot of in, Indian volunteers in particular, they're thinking in terms of, well, we defeat the Japanese Empire so we can rid ourselves of the British Empire eventually. What's the deal? What's is there a deal? What's the bargain? Do we know? Yeah, yeah. There was uh, there was a driving force that I discovered behind black service personnel wanting to serve in combat because there was a campaign stateside called the Double V Campaign, which um, was launched by a letter to the Pittsburgh Courier newspaper, which is a black letter, black newspaper, and it was what it stood for was victory at home and victory abroad, Double V. And the belief was if um, black soldiers served honorably in World War II and did their part, then they would earn, earn the equality that they had not had at home. So there was like a, it was there, there was a drive in the back of their minds that I have to show them that I'm just as good as the white soldiers, just as brave, just as, you know, courageous and intelligent. Yeah. So what was and you and you see that in the Tuskegee Airmen as well. Too. Oh yeah. I mean, this is exactly the same motivation. You know, we're yeah. going to show them, and, and you know, boy, did they! I mean, yeah, yeah. There, there was that. Absolutely, it, that was the driving force, because there was a lot of grumbling. You know, when the black soldiers were relegated to these service roles, even uh, Edward Carter, Sergeant Carter, wrote home to his wife. You know, why should I push a mop? You know, for for the war when I've got all these. Well, skills. it's interesting you bring up him because he's he's the one that I knew about before um, I read your book, and and um, I don't know if it, whether I've got a UK edition or an American edition, but he's definitely the guy on the front cover of the book I've got, <laughs> yeah. um, looking devilishly <laughs> handsome as well. I have to say, I mean, he is, and yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what a what a dude. Yeah. I mean, he, he he's a devilishly handsome fellow. 
His story is quite extraordinary, isn't it? And, and I mean, you know, I mean, just, just, I mean, born in Los Angeles, a missionary father, but an Anglo-Indian mother. He goes, he grows up in India. Then they move to Shanghai, and and he 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 volunteers to fight age fifteen, yep. doesn't he? Yep. Uh, yeah. This is a guy who wants to fight, isn't it? It's a guy who wants a, a, the adventure and fight. Well, he. But but he's also Doesn't got it? this incredible moral compass, hasn't he? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, he he believes in fighting for people's rights and for freedom, and uh, you know, he's he's a sort of massive anti-oppressor, um, anti-dictator. He hates all that kind of right-wing shit. Yeah, he, he is. Plus, he had a father who was a dictator. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Maybe it's a reaction against maybe that. Maybe that's what's going on. Yeah, maybe not that extreme, but he, you know, he wanted to get out from under the thumb of his father, and and. Uh, and he did want to serve, and he was a. And he joins the Chinese, doesn't he? The Chinese army in 1932. It's all 32. That's right. Yeah, the Shanghai Incident. Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. Exactly, the Chinese 19th Army that was overseen by uh, broadly Chiang Kai-shek, um, and he fought the Japanese Marines, <laughs> you know, who invaded, yeah. y- y- you know, uh, Shanghai, China, and performed um, bravely and. As I say in the book, they were about to elevate him to lieutenant when his father came and such has been his obvious leadership yeah. and, and 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 bravery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Before his father collected him and said, uh, "No, you can't do this. You're underage," and uh, they were kind of left hanging. <laughs> but he was. That's what he knew. He was a soldier from the age of fifteen, and uh, it's wow. amazing. Uh, his his whole career. So many people have told me that, you know, his story is a movie, and I agree. And um, I work closely with his daughter-in-law, Aline Carter. Right. I'm actually going to see her at an event at the National World War II Museum this week. But, I mean, his life before the Second World War comes is sort of plenty to be getting on with, isn't it? I mean, he, he fights for, like I say, he fights for the Chinese. He Then he... Gets himself to Abyssinia to um, to to fight against the or tries to go to fight yep, the, uh, against the Italians. Ends <laughs> up a merchant sp- seaman, doesn't he? I yeah, mean, yeah, he fights, covers fights, old, old boots to exactly, do that. He fights for the Sp- fights for the Republicans again in Spain. I mean, it's just it's you know this guy's this this guy's uh, with the and like you say with his sort of righteous sense of looking for looking for fascists to fight smash isn't he basically yeah, it's extraordinary absolutely and it was also uh, i think a result of the great depression in the states there was no yeah. work for young black men at the time so he he was either on unemployment or he was you know wanted to fighting fascists yeah, fighting fascists <laughs> <laughs> well i mean how i got, how i got to find out about him i i was in um I was in, in in Spain actually this time last year. God, I can't believe a year's gone. I was this time last year, and he 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 came across my radar when I was looking at the Spanish Civil War this time last year. Um, and and I just thought, God, why have I never heard of this guy? I mean, what was he like? I mean, he he seems like he's sort of super bright and and natural leadership and all that kind of stuff. I mean, have I got that right? Yeah, he he was. He inspired men to follow him. He uh, that's why he was elevated to squad leader. And uh, um, he just had uh, a charisma. This is what I gleaned from my research. He just had a charisma that he was going to get the job done. And, uh, you know, you got to be with him. You don't want to be against him. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a my way or the highway guy. <laughs> yeah, kind. exactly. Yeah. And uh, he was uh, very disciplined and he took great pride in, in being uh, a soldier. He, he, it was what made him him. And uh, right. he was very proud to, um, to earn the DSC. I mean, the picture, I believe it's in the book, of him receiving the DSC in Los Angeles. He, he just is the picture of pride in receiving that medal. Mm. And um, he, uh, you mentioned the Spanish Civil War. He, uh, he was labeled, unfortunately, as you know, um, a communist for being involved with that conflict when he didn't believe in communism at all. But he was, you know, fighting for freedom. So, so he thought. And uh, that label followed him into uh, civilian life after World War II. Uh. Oh God! Oh dear. Yeah, I can see what that's unfortunate, thinking. isn't it? Yeah. So, so, but, but just to backtrack a bit on him, because I, I think he's so Eddie Carter is just so interesting. So, so, so he survives the Spanish Civil War, gets back to the U.S. He joins pretty early on, doesn't he? The U.S. Army. Yeah. Um, it's like 1941. Yeah, September 1941. He joined uh, up and uh, trained at Fort Benning, and uh, he was part of a quartermaster unit there. But he was written up in the Post Gazette several times as the best marksman in the unit. <laughs> so, I mean, and his favorite weapon was the, the Tommy gun, but he was labeled as the best marksman. And uh, it was very frustrating for him, um, you know, to have these skills and not be able to use them. And he was. Yeah, must have been. He petitioned uh, the army almost daily to uh, be allowed to enter combat. And he was one of the soldiers who took up the offer at the end of 1944, Eisenhower's letter of the privilege of joining a rifle company. Um, and he was one of the soldiers who trained and joined, you know, the, the mystery division, 12th Armored, um, and uh, went into Germany um, early on in, into unscouted territory. I mean, they, they were entering territory that were around any corner. There would be um, Germans uh, hiding, and that's what happened to him. His convoy was ambushed. Yeah, so, to, so tell the story of, of, of what he does to, to win his Medal of Honor. Sure. DSE, then Medal of Honor. Yeah, he was entering, um, I don't recall the town offhand, but he was entering um, a town in Germany, and his convoy was ambushed uh, from an abandoned warehouse 150 yards off the side of the road, by an 88 and a machine gun nest uh, of Germans. And they were pinned down on the road, they couldn't move. So he volunteered to take um, some men over to the warehouse and take it out. And his commander said, well, all right, <laughs> if you think you can do it. So he, uh, you know, he plans and, and he starts crossing open ground Basically, the grass wasn't that high. Starts crossing open ground towards the warehouse, and they're still firing at the convoy. And uh, two of his men were wounded and uh, tried to retreat back. He was shot nine times. Yeah, God. nine times. And one time he was uh, he was on the ground hiding after he was shot, and uh, he raised his canteen to his mouth and a bullet came through his hand and shot the canteen out of his hand. I mean, he was in wow. bad shape, but he didn't give up. He said he, he, he had his Tommy gun with him, his trusted Tommy gun. 
and he made a plan. He waited there for two hours. He knew that the Germans would come out and start looking for the bodies, you know, and, and eliminating them. So he made a plan to, with the nine wounds he had, that he would take these Germans out. And it so happens the German patrol of, of eight soldiers uh, came out and he knew that they would call if, you know, if they saw him and he did hear them call him American and German. And he had rehearsed his move to put, throw all his weight on his Tommy gun, stand up and take them all out. And he did. He, he took out six of the eight in this patrol. And the, the remaining two just raised their hands and froze. And mind you, he's wounded with nine, you know, wounds. And what he does is he grabs one of the men, puts him in front of him, another German, and puts him behind him and backs 150 yards back towards the convoy. <laughs> Where both sides It's just unbelievable. It's unbelievable. unbelievable. Yeah, both both sides are I mean if you saw that and if you I mean the problem you're gonna have when you make the movie, Rob, is, is that when <laughs> yeah. you do that, no one's gonna believe it. Yeah. No one will believe that. It's completely absurd. Yeah. Well there were many witnesses, including the Germans, who were awestruck. And, but wait, it gets better. What he did when he reached, um, you know, the convoy, his commander said, well, that's great. You know, you got to get, you know, you got to evacuate and get yourself, you know, mended up. You know, this is amazing. And he said, wait, I, I can't leave. We don't know what's up ahead of us. And they were kind of dumbstruck. And he said, we, we have to know what's you know, what's ahead of us. So I'm going to interrogate these men. And they're like, what? And they started interrogating them in German, German that he learned in his time in Shanghai. So he was able to interrogate these men, find out uh, the hidden uh, placements up ahead, the German emplacements from these men who gave up the information. And uh, he said, all right, now we've gotten our information. I'll evacuate now. So he, he allowed the convoy to proceed safely with that information that he gleaned from the Germans in German, which, I mean, it's just amazing. That's just incredible. It's it? incredible. Yeah. And then how long did he take to recover from his wounds? Was he, you know, if he's been shot nine times, is he, is he in hospital for, for a long time or does he, the war ends before, obviously the war ends before he recovers. Mm, um, actually, actually uh, no. It, it, no? <laughs> right, okay. But wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Um, he's in uh, the hospital and he writes his, his wife, Mildred, about his wounds. And he said, um, you know, I can't wait, get, wait to get back to my unit. They, don't, they didn't shoot me up that bad. And uh, he lists, you know, where his wounds are. And uh, he gets a little sick of being in the hospital, and uh, he hitches a ride with on, with the captain and the tenth armored back to the front. He he sneaks out of the hospital and um, gets back to the front within a couple miles of the twelfth armored. And uh, the uh, when he arrives, just as he arrives at uh, his unit, the hospital contacts his unit. And they tell his unit, his commander, that he's gone AWOL. And his commander said, no, actually he hasn't. He's right here in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're going to put him back on the line. I mean, that's like, 
the most. Inc- I mean, presumably some of his nine wounds are exit wounds, right? Yeah, there's some through the arm and leg. I mean, yeah, they're exit wounds too. But still, I mean, he he recovered. He was <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah, like it's Superman. Rid- yeah, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it's absolutely ridiculous. And what happens to him after the war? I mean, he's he survives, obviously. Yeah, he. Um, Survives and and uh, goes back to. He doesn't make old bones, though, does he? No, he doesn't. No, he uh, um, retires to uh, well, retires, goes back to into civilian life in Los Angeles, and uh, encounters a lot of trouble there. He's he's awarded the DSC in Los Angeles, but he he wants to start a, a painting company. He applies for a VA loan. He's turned down for the VA loan. There's no work. So he decides to rejoin the army, and he rejoins the army, and he's um, uh, becomes a trainer of of some uh, young infantry officers in uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. But um, he, when he goes to reenlist in 1949, because of his service in Spain and him oh. being labeled a communist, they prevent him from reenlisting. So he's He's denied reenlistment, even though he was awarded the DSC. And then he goes on a letter writing campaign to, to, you know, to try to get back into the army. A lot of frustration. Um, he actually, at one point, through his lawyer, um, returns the DSC to the to, to the military, but his lawyer doesn't actually give it back to the government because he holds on to it um, because he knows that Sergeant Carter wants it will want it back. So the end of his life was really a study in frustration. And um, he had uh, trouble with his wife because of this. And and, um, Aline Carter, his daughter-in-law, Mildred, told her that um, it was very frustrating because she she didn't know why the army would prevent such a soldier from rejoining. And and she doubted him. No, it's insane. Right. And so they, you know, they kind of drifted apart and he um, passed away from, I believe it was lung cancer at age of 47 in January of 1963. So, you know, that could have been the end of his story, but it wasn't. And, uh, you know, what he had done was so incredible that he was one of the men who was studied in the study at Shaw University and elevated to the uh, Medal of Honor. Well, Gosh. and it sounds like completely deservedly so. It's just yeah, an incredible yeah. story. That's why I put him on the cover, um, you know, because it just. Uh, so he's, he's your favorite too, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think they're all my favorite because. Um, I know what you mean. Of course they are. Because you get so close to these it, guys. Exactly. You really do. You get to be almost protective of these guys like Vernon Baker and you know, Charles Thomas, and they, they're all different from each other, but they they all had that one quality of, of just valor and bravery above the call of duty. Um, and that's what the criteria for the Medal of Honor is, you know, above and beyond, the, you know, gallantry above and beyond the call of duty. And they certainly fit that mold. And, you know, I want people to really look at these men as warriors, not just these are black men who were happen to be warriors. No, of course. But yeah, 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 yeah. But these are people to be admired, emulated um, by soldiers today. 
We need to take a quick break right now. We'll see you in a moment. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Is this is this a common experience um, after the war for these men? That, yeah. That, yeah. That they regard life as a sort of frustration because of because you know they're not that the promise isn't fulfilled and and racism reasserts itself or, uh, or asserts itself around their lives. Is this something you'll see with Charles L. Thomas and you know uh, uh, Vernon J. Baker? Is this is this a thing that happens to all of them? Essentially, uh, it is. There was great disappointment uh, that the double V campaign didn't really um, bear fruit, and uh, the country remained um, for another twenty years until the civil rights movement uh, in the sixties um, divided, and you know, racially divided and uh, prejudiced. There's, there's no whitewashing it, you know, quote unquote. There's no, you know painting a rosy picture here, it was a divided racist country. And that's just the way it was. And it took, you know, the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King and, and those forces to um, correct this. Even though the military did um, desegregate by Truman's order, um, it, it took a while for them to be integrated. Um, and I can't speak for the military now, but I, I assume it's much, much better uh, for soldiers in, in the military now. Not like it was, obviously. But um, Well, I remember when I was studying the 92nd Buffalo Division, it was just, the, the, it was just appalling. The whole thing was set up with, with Southern white officers. Um, and they were just humiliated at every turn. They were kind of belittled at every single turn during their training. Um, you know, their training was absolutely brutal, as you can imagine. Uh, and, you know, they got out to uh, got out to Italy, uh, you know, with, with motivation levels that kind of sort of, you know, minus 20. I mean, you know, how, how can you blame them? And yet, yet, despite that, they did incredible things. And actually, one of your guys in, in, in this list is a is a 92nd division guy, isn't he? Yeah, Vernon Baker is uh, part of the 370. Uh, and just, uh, I mean... Total self-sacrifice. I mean, I mean, there is no other phrase for it. I mean, it, 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 it's because he's in a town, Germans counterattack. He knows the only way he's going to stop that counterattack is bringing the artillery on, but he's stranded in a, in a second story of a building, isn't he? Something like that. Oh, is that right? That, that's um, John Fox. Oh, John Fox. Okay, so that's John Fox. And he, but, but he's 92nd Division, isn't yep, he? He is. And, and so he's, he, he's stranded in this this the second story of this building, and he knows that the only way he can stop this is by calling in the artillery, which will also land on him. Yeah, yeah, they were outnumbered in uh, Soma Colonia, in, uh, which is in Tuscany, and he was in a stone tower that was built in the Middle, middle Ages, and uh, um, he was the forward observer for artillery, and he could see, you know, all the Germans coming and pouring in from every direction and, uh, you know, resorting to hand-to-hand -hand combat on the ground. And uh, they were just swarming. And they, he, he had no choice. When he called, he did call in an artillery strike on his position because he, they didn't believe him at first, as you may have read in the book. They, they had to have him repeat his order and ask him if he was yeah. sure. And then they brought... And wasn't it his friend was on the other end of the yeah. line? 
Yeah. His, his, his close friend was the one who had to uh, give the artillery coordinates and the fire coordinates to, to the field art, artillery, which is amazing in itself. And um, he... And, and, and Fox just says, fire it. Give, give them hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give them hell. There, there's more of them than there are of us. So, that's right. So, so amazing. I, I mean, it's incredible. But it's, but it's that, John, that's your position. I know how to read a damn map. I know. I mean, it's, yep. again, if you put that in a film, people might not believe it. It's, it's, it's extraordinary to call in a fire mission on your own position. It is. Well, only um, James Bond does that, doesn't he? Yes, yeah. only James Bond has done that in recent <laughs> cinematic history. I mean, everyone thought that was absurd. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very true. I did. I felt it was completely absurd. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but but Rob, the, the the other one that really really um, I think struck me was was the Ruben River story. Then the only guy who doesn't get the DSE he gets the Silver Star. I mean that's an incredible story. And he's with the with the famous Black Panthers. Yeah, seven sixty first Tank Battalion became Patton's Black Panthers because he he requested Patton needed tankers and he requested back for tankers and they told him, well the only ones we have left are the you know the quote unquote Negro tankers. And it's reported that Patton said, I didn't ask about color, I asked for tankers. So that's why they it became his Black Panthers. And he gave the speech that, you know, when they arrived, I don't, I don't care, you know, what the press says, but uh, I want you to, you know, fight like hell for me. So they did. And uh, he... Uh, Ruben Rivers was born in Oklahoma, and um, he's a farmer, isn't he? He's a son of yeah, a farmer, yeah, a tenant farmer in Oklahoma, and um, so you can imagine what that's like. Oh yeah, hard scrabble nineteen thirties. Oh, yeah, I mean, ridiculous. <laughs> huge family, mm-hmm. huge family, too many mouths to feed, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And uh, three of his two his two other brothers served in the war, and. Um, but he served in the 761st Tank Battalion. And uh, his commander, David Williams, Ruben was kind of stoic. He just didn't say much, but he let his, you know, his bravery prove out on the, you know, in the field. And uh, what you referenced before, how he received the Silver Star was amazing because um, they were entering a town under fire. They were following the infantry support and um, there was a, a mined tree trunk across the road blocking the convoy and the infantry, infantry was pinned down and Ruben's tank was at the very end. So they were stuck. They couldn't go anywhere. So Ruben took his tank, went around the column, went to the front to find out what was happening. And as his commander says, where the hell are you going? <laughs> and he reaches the mined tree trunk jumps out under fire, the mortar fire, small arms fire, uh, and machine gun fire, and wraps the steel tow cable around the tree trunk, which has mines in it. And by the time he's finished, all the mortar fire and small arms fire are now on his position, directed at him. So he jumps back in the tank, pulls the, the tree trunk off the road, exploding mines, but they were able to continue. It's basically saved the convoy from, you know, being sitting ducks there. But 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 that's so that's on the that's on the eighth of November, nineteen forty four, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But 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 
but he's not done either. I mean, he's a bit like kind of. Um, no, no, he, he's a bit like Eddie. He's kind of you know he's he's got unfinished he's business got more, when it comes more to, to offer. bravery, yeah. <laughs> more yeah. to offer on the bravery stage. Yeah, he, he becomes the lead tanker for uh, Captain Williams, and uh, as the lead tanker, he takes out <laughs> a curious privilege at the best of times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes out a tiger tank, you know, point blank range in the next town, and and just you know is is wreaking havoc, and uh, he. Um, in the lead, they enter a town where his, uh, he's crossing over a ro- railroad um, crossing with his tank and hits a teller mine, which blows the, the tracks off his tank, spins it around, and his leg is injured severely, so much so that he can barely walk. So he crawls out of his tank and his commander says, well, we're going to evacuate you, Reuben, back behind the lines. And he refused. And, uh, you know, the medics said this, you know, this is a really bad wound. And he, he pushed, you know, the morphine away and, and got up and hobbled over to another tank and opened the hatch and motioned the, the tanker to get out. <laughs> and he got in this other tank. And, uh, and uh, his commander said, are you sure? I said, and Ruben says, I'm sure. Let's go. <laughs> So they kept moving forward further into German-occupied territory, and uh, his pain, his its leg, you know, started to really because it's, it's, it's I presume it's sort of going septic or something. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's not good. Exactly. And uh, they finally stop at one town, and he's in such pain that you know his commander just about orders him to evacuate, and he refuses again, and he says, "You're going to need me." In the next couple of days, you know, it won't change any, it won't be any different in the next couple of days. And uh, gangrene was setting in. So his, David Williams knew that he couldn't, he needed him and he couldn't stop him. So he told him, well, when we cross that river into this particular town, the 11th Panzer Division is on the other side and you, you're not, you're not going to be able to evacuate. And he says, well, you know, let's go. So he was in the lead again, Reuben Rivers, and uh, they come, came under heavy fire from uh, German anti-tank guns. And uh, Reuben was leading into this town and he, he radioed to Williams that he saw the gun and he was going to take it out. But the gun was, gunner was too fast and he fired uh, a shell right into uh, Reuben's lead tank blew it apart, and another shell followed, and Ruben was killed instantly as the lead tanker. And um, it really shook it really shook up uh, David Williams. And um, he took up against convention, I'll say, against convention of white commanders uh, recommending the DSC for their brave black soldiers because they knew that They'd never received the Medal of Honor. It was an unspoken rule that you do not submit black soldiers for the Medal of Honor. But Williams was different in that he petitioned his commander um, for the, to have Reuben receive the Medal of Honor. And mm-hmm. uh, his commander said, well, I'll see what I can do. You know, I don't know about this. Uh, but he refused to um, submit him for the DSC. And uh, David Williams was instrumental in getting 
the 761st, the presidential unit citation, which they were awarded, I believe in the 70s. And uh, he continued to push for Reuben Rivers, his you know, fearless tanker from Oklahoma, to receive the Medal of Honor. And he was very involved with the Shaw study when the Army commissioned the study to review the Medal of Honor recipients. So much so that I think the researchers at Shaw didn't have a choice. I mean, <laughs> right. David Williams was going to get you know, his tanker, the Medal of Honor, one way or the other. And uh, so he became the anomaly of all the ones names submitted uh, of not receiving the DSC, but the Silver Star for his action. And that was his story. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. And it, it is extraordinary, isn't it, these sort of barriers to bravery being recognized? Because, you know, they're going through exactly the same things as anyone else yeah. putting themselves in danger. They've absolutely proved the lie on the idea that they, are, they won't be competent. Black people won't be competent soldiers, won't be brave in combat. It's, you know, it's all obviously evidently all gone out of the window, hasn't it? I mean, it just shows what bad fuel racism is, you know, if you put you, oh, whatever yeah. engine you put it in, it you get bad outcomes, don't you? I mean, it, it, that's right up there with any act of heroism or ba- bravery or gallantry I've ever ever heard of. Yeah. It, it seems crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. And, you know, people today don't realize actually how bad it was. And that was one of the surprises I took away from the book that, boy, this was bad. There was racism, you know, severe racism in uh United States in, in this time period. And people just say, oh, uh, I don't know. Maybe it was bad. I don't know. But it was. It was really bad. Mm. And that's what surprised me. Um, it, even to the point where, you know, these men at, at the camp, like at Camp Claiborne in Louisiana, the town of Alexandria, which is just outside of it, the rule was when they were out on the town, they had to look down and step off the sidewalk and let a white person pass. And uh, that's how it was, because uh, the rule was you couldn't look white civilians in the eye because that was considered uppity, quote unquote. So, you know, that's the reality. That's what it was. Yeah. So, Gosh. Well, I mean, they're all they're all we've we've highlighted a kind of, you know, handful, but 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 all seven of them are um, absolutely incredible stories. I mean, yeah. you know, I'd urge everyone to get out and read it. It's it's just it's it's totally fascinating. Yeah. Thanks so much, Rob. I mean, uh, uh, Immortal Valor um, is where you can read about these, uh, the Black Medal Honor, Honor winners, um, the, these incredible people. And also- They're really incredible people. They're incredible really, people. Really properly uh, amazing. Yeah, they are. And is part of the civil rights movement 20 years later, people going, hang on a minute, we were promised something and we weren't delivered it. Is, that, is there an element of that, that post-war? that black people are saying, hang on a minute, you promised us this during the second, you promised us equality in the second world war, you haven't delivered. So we're going to have to push for it now. Is it, it, is there an, is that a thing that motivates the civil rights movement? Absolutely, because I can use an example of that. Uh, Lean Carter, who I mentioned, who's yeah. Sergeant Carter's daughter-in-law, she was part of the civil rights movement. <laughs> she, she, uh, right. she marched on Washington in the 60s, um, you know, in, in, I'm sure in memory of her father-in-law and to, you know, to push the quality forward that they had been denied. So I I would agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much for joining us. Just such an interesting story. Like I say, people need to go out and, and, and get the book because it's, it is, I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible stories. 
and in, of in, incredibly brave people. Um, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We will see you again very soon. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Bye.